Welcome. You're listening to The Hill by Thieves Theatre. I'm Gabrielle. And I'm Nick, and we're thieves. Well, not exactly thieves, but beginning in 1981, we called ourselves Thieves Theatre, but we didn't just do theatre. We did conceptual guerrilla art projects, or what we called paratheatrical work. Our goal was to disrupt and alter the social and political status quo. Which means we really just like putting sticks in anthills and watching the ants scurry and adjust to their new reality, their new status quo. So we're coming towards the end of this story. Um, a few more episodes and the events of the teepee in the shantytown will have been told. This episode will end with the death of Mr. Lee. And uh, then there'll be a few more episodes to deal with the aftermath. Uh, it's not the events, the facts, that's difficult to narrate. Um, it's trying to make sense of it all, trying to analyze what it is we did, our actions and non-actions, uh, which was our personal reason for doing the podcast, to re-examine everything 30-plus years later. Right. Um, hold it at arm's length and try to understand and come to terms with things like our motives, our mistakes, um, our responsibility, our possible culpability, and to draw some kind of conclusion to reconcile the uh, guilt we felt and s still feel. About Mr. Lee's death, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you can do that, say, when you're watching a movie, right? Um, but can you treat yourself as a character in a fiction and have that same kind of objectivity, watch and rewatch the same movie and then come to some kind of aha moment, right? One of the problems with that is that you have not only a conscious self, but an unconscious self to contend with both at the time, contemporaneously, but also right now, right? Like, what is it that we're after right now? So in some ways, the answer is uh, stupidly simple that I think probably you've figured out at this point too, right? It's, it's, it's like most literary or filmic characters. What they're looking for is absolution, right? Uh, absolution in the death of Mr. Lee. Yeah. Okay, the last two episodes we spoke about our trip out west. Uh, the goal of the trip was to research Wovoka and the ghost dance, but we also hoped we could gift the TP memorial to the Lakota tribe at Pine Ridge, and thinking that that would help us exit the hill. I'm, but we say this 30 years later. I'm not sure we were consciously trying to exit the hill back then. <laughs> uh, we were hoping to gift the TP to the Lakota, yes. That was conscious, but we, if they had accepted it, would we have just walked away from the hill? Yeah, that's the question, right? Now, later. Yeah. Because after Mr. Lee died, uh, we took down the original teepee and then built and painted a fresh teepee out of, out of canvas that we painted um, with all of the symbols that we associated with Mr. Lee. And we put it up as a memorial to Mr. Lee. So we didn't even walk away from the hill after Mr. Lee died. And, and what does that say, right? Well, yeah, and and so yes, also another memorial 
right? Right. The we memorial an, changed. Yeah. We made another memorial, this time to Mr. Lee, and put that up. So we've been thinking a lot, obviously, about memorials in the last couple of episodes. Um, why? is what another thing we're thinking about. It's nothing that we outlined initially as being part of this podcast. So what's the deal with memorials? Well, we right? just answered it in one way yeah. because it, it, the whole thing ended up as a memorial to Mr. Lee. But, um, and memorials are memories. Memories are memorials. Some memories, whether they're public memorials like war memorials or private gravestones, are tied up into the trauma they recall. Right. They're a kind of before and after marker in one's life journey, a place where you continually revisit. Relive. Yeah, right. both consciously and un unconsciously. In my case, this is especially true with Mr. Lee, or our case. I mean, I, I've been collecting turtle figurines now yeah. for all these years. Yeah, we have hundreds of them. Right, kind of talismans in honor of uh, Mr. Lee. Right, right, which are more memorials, right. right? More before and after markers. Every time we buy one or pick up one yeah. or something, right? And so, you know, I feel the need at this point to kind of step back a little bit and touch base with the intentions at the very beginning of putting up this teepee in the shantytown. Because people, by which I mean like officials, um, you know, people from the Coalition for the Homeless in particular, who have a very narrow focus, um, borough president's office, they were constantly asking us, what are you trying to do? What's your goal here? Yeah, and our, <laughs> our answer was always, uh, I think, the same. <laughs> we don't have a goal. And, or <laughs> as we say to ourselves, uh, Put a stick inside the ant hill and watch the ant scurvy. And As see we what say at the beginning of every Where single episode, yeah, yeah. right? I mean, you have a shanty town that has existed for five years that we knew of. We drove past it every day. Yeah. So let's put up a teepee inside it and see what happens. That's it. That was the goal. That's what artists do. Artists are not social workers or politicians or whatever else is dealing with that. Yeah. So that was the answer to them in any case. Right. We put up a memorial, <laughs> just like we said, right? But we called our work the Living Museum of the Nomad Monad, meaning as the circumstances changed, so did our goals. Remember, we didn't think this teepee would stay up in the first place. So as circumstances kept changing, just like, you know, any creative act, everything keeps changing. Your goals, your, your intentions keep changing. From the beginning, we kept having to invent new ones as circumstances changed. So first and foremost, of course, was a memorial. We erected the teepee in the shantytown and dedicated it on the centenary of the Wounded Knee Massacre in remembrance of the lives lost in 1890 and in recognition of the sovereignty and dignity of the most disenfranchised and forgotten members of our society a hundred years later. Right. That was it. Right. So one year in, on the 101st anniversary of Wounded Knee, we took a road trip that was concentrating on the remembrance of the lives lost in 1890. After our visit to Pine Ridge, we came back concentrated on the second part of that, right. which is the sovereign and dignity of the most disenfranchised, <laughs> the residents on the hill, yes. right? Who our, have now become like family. Right. <laughs> and taking care of the church, the teepee, 
the church in their minds that we had put up. And that meant a great deal to them. Gave them a lot of, yeah. What's a church give you? I don't I know. I don't know. <laughs> but it, but meant, it meant a lot right. to them at that point, which is why they took such good care of it, right? Right. So regarding our gift of the teepee to the Lakota, our, <laughs> our intent still feels pure to this day. And we're even today still seeking the approval from the victims of the massacre, the dead of the Lakota. Right. 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 And maybe that says everything about the TP project on the hill. Our intent still feel pure in our minds to this day. Yeah. And we are, even today, still seeking approval or from, I don't know, approval, absolution from, from Mr. Lee, right? Yeah, which we're never going to get until <laughs> Yeah, from the, we meet again. From Wounded Knee or <laughs> Mr. Lee until, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, to, to continue with our story, for one thing, we wish this is pre-internet. OK, but we wish we would have made better plans before heading out west to Wounded Knee, put more effort into finding Lakota elders, for example, right, to offer the TP2. Uh, we accepted Leola as the authority. And one of the reasons we did is because John and Annie had directed us to her because when they got there, they got there first a couple of weeks earlier, they were told that Leola was the expert. So they right. met Leola and then they sent us to Leola, right? Well, we had also written, what, the Lakota Times, this pre-internet and everything. So we wrote the newspaper. We did, but we never got a response. Right. And we well, let it go with that. Yeah. But for instance, we could have taken the opportunity or we should have to get closer to Percy. Yes. We might have found someone who would have supported our memorial, and then the rest of our story would have changed. But at the time, we didn't get to know Percy very well. Just a few short conversations, and they were always with Leola present, and Percy mostly deferred Percy's to Percy's Leola's partner. Right. You know, we had told you last episode how Percy, when we met him, he came riding up on horseback, looking like he, like a native cowboy, like he rode out yeah. of some kind of western, saying how he was coming back from hunting slow elk, quote unquote, right. like cows that he got from. <laughs> a neighboring reservation, right? Uh, uh, no, 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 not reservation, no. government property. <laughs> not government, yeah, government, uh, yeah, right. So, um, well, anyway... We have since Googled him further, see what we could find out. And amazingly, and this is just a few days ago, we actually discovered that he was, in fact, writing out of a Western at the time. The very Western that premiered on Thanksgiving when we erected the teepee a year earlier, which is Percy was an actor in Kevin Costner's Dances with Wolves. Yeah, he was <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Who knew? Well, I wish we would have known yeah. then. I mean, he was in the scene where Kevin Costner's uh, character, the lieutenant, was in the process of sort of being accepted into the tribe. He had lost his army hat on the field out in a buffalo hunt, mm -hmm. and one of the Lakota warriors from the tribe picked it up. And he wanted to keep it. And, you know, Kevin Costner wanted it back. But that warrior who wanted to keep it, big was, warrior, was... What's his character name? Yeah. Right. Was Percy Whitebloom. Yes, who spoke Lakota throughout the entire film, which right. is you know, yeah, revolutionary that was, at the time. At yeah. that time, right. I mean, 
had we known it at the time, we, we might have had a way in of talking to him about the memorial that we had built yeah. and, and considering how enthusiastic he had been about the... Uh, Crazy Horse Memorial? Yeah. Unlike he, Leola? Yeah, in direct opposition to Leola. Exactly. He may have found some value in our intent or... Yeah. You know? Oh, so, so more than that, Percy is also the founder and director of the Horse Spirit Society which invites and encourages anyone to join them on the Chief Bigfoot Memorial Ride. If you recall from the last episode, that's the ride that we passed uh, in Pine Ridge, you know, where people recreate the journey that Chief Bigfoot took the day of the massacre before he died. So as one of those organizers... Percy was probably, we probably passed Percy. Well, yeah, Percy know? was, a, of course, a part of that, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and as he would have been, um, because that all started in 1986. And he was one of the original writers. Exactly. Right. So with yeah. all of that, right. we would have been better off with Percy. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, even with the brief meeting with Percy, we felt that he was uh, a more introspective and mm-hmm. kind of... On a spiritual journey, yeah, spiritual right. Journey, yeah. More than Leola was, but we we might have stood a better chance with with him. But again, it just shows how badly we were trying to <laughs> seek some kind of gesture of yes. approval or something. So, under the circumstances, when we returned to the teepee to the shanty town after the road trip, the teepee had been really well taken care of. So you know, gift rejected, teepee beloved. Now what? Well, yeah. Well, we decided, well, just keep on making art and see what happens. I mean, that's all we knew. That's all we had to do, right? (laughs) And we started planning another theater piece. I mean, we were making the film, Mm -hmm. and we started making another theater piece on Janae's Prisoner of Love based on that, which was a guiding text from the start before we even put up the teepee. Exactly. Um, In explaining the title of his book, Janae said... Gradually, my feelings changed. I was still charmed, but I was not convinced. I was attracted, but not blinded. I behaved like a prisoner of love. And that was a perfect description of our relationship to the hill at that point, which is why it seemed like a good idea Mm -hmm. to do a theater project based on prisoner of love now, right? Right. And as, as I said from the beginning, maybe counterintuitively, definitely, I would say, what comes to mind when I think about the hill, first and foremost, is not sadness and not violence and not any of that, but all of the belly laughs these people mm-hmm. gave me and all of the lessons they taught me, the lessons in perseverance without whining, you know, in, in radical self-acceptance, in uh, zen-like presence, act in the here and now, don't worry about the past, don't worry about the future, and the entitlement behind thinking that your life should have some kind of overarching mission, some kind of kind of grand purpose, right? When we got back to the hill from our trip on New Year's Day, we got back on New Year's Day, we went directly to the hill. We didn't even stop at the Brooklyn apartment, and per- pretty much everyone was there. Yeah. And we got a real warm welcome home, <laughs> and everybody was proud to have taken care of the team. <laughs> Louis greeted us with a hug, saying, I'm still drinking. <laughs> yes, you are, sweet Louis. Yes, right, you right. are. And they all loved their, their medicine bead 
necklaces, necklaces that we gave. Yes, uh, they wore them. They wore them for weeks after that. Until yeah. one, one of the cops stopped up there one day, yeah. and he said to me, what's with all these necklaces? Are you guys some kind of cult now or something? <laughs> sure, why not? We'll take it, right? <laughs> right? So anyway, the next day, you returned the rental car, because I was too chicken, I think, uh, to come with you, with a cracked windshield and 9,000 extra miles yeah, right. on it. <laughs> in three weeks. <laughs> right. And then in the, in the coming weeks, we started making sandbags out of the mailbags, yes. filling them with sand, creating like bunkers from a war or something, right? In preparation for Prisoner of Love. Right. You know, because Prisoner of Love takes place largely among the, uh, the refugees, uh, the Palestinians in the Gaza and West Bank. And Janae is telling of his life living with the PLO. Yeah, yeah. So um, it was funny, you know, when we started the project, Prisoner of Love wasn't published in the U.S., uh, we heard the inside story on that from someone we knew at Grove Press who was considering publishing it, but it was even too controversial for them at the time. And this is the foremost alternative press uh, renowned for you know their censorship and obscenity battles in the courts. Right. So what we did was we bought uh, 50 copies from a London publisher mm -hmm. and had them shipped to us. And ironically, while we were now planning the theater piece, it was published in the U.S., so it watered down the values of the copies? No, not really. I mean, because all we wanted to do was kind of distribute them and have people read it in America. We didn't really have a, a, any other plan for them. But, yeah. But yeah. now we had a plan, sort of. <laughs> yes. Right? Yes. Right. So, all right. With the new crack cocaine epidemic that was going on at the time, right? Also came a new vocation on the hill. The heroin addicts were primarily thieves, but the crack addicts were mostly scammers. A victimless crime in so many ways because scams depend on the greedy marks falling for the scam. Yeah, right? and so what they did was they make fake camcorder boxes and sell them on Canal Street yeah. as though they were stolen, <laughs> but they were fake. <laughs> they take cardboard boxes, make them into a, a shape of a camcorder, and then they would take like advertising pieces of stuff for camcorder and put it on the outside of the box and then put a piece of plastic over it like it was shrink-wrapped so it looked like it was stolen right from the store. Yeah. <laughs> and they'd sell them at night so people wouldn't look at them that closely or could tell that they were fake. And they th people thought they were buying real stolen property. And getting right? a great deal, right. right? So in the journal, I wrote this. Oh, yeah, the little demon girl Kia and her boyfriend Vaughn. She's about five feet tall. He's maybe 5'10", with trademark matching jogging suits and sneakers and lightning in their eyes. They're always on the move. They're... Young, optimistic, eager capitalists. If they had been raised another way, they might be young Republicans forming a business venture with one specializing in manufacture and the other in sales. Wunderkinder taking Wall Street by storm. Instead, they'll probably end up dead or in prison, but the pride and achievement is the same, however. Yeah. So anyway, one day, I paid them 20 bucks to show me how they made their boxes. And then we made our own. 
But instead of filling them with wet newspaper, we filled them with copies of Prisoner of Love with a handmade bookmark telling people how to get their money back if they were not completely satisfied with their purchase. Right. <laughs> okay, yeah, so this became another art, art project. project. We had these boxes. I want to say I sold them on the street. Sometimes I get sort of caught up in the legend of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I have said that I did, and maybe I did. I don't know, but I think not. It's a little too brave of a performance art it seems. For, for even me, I guess. But maybe I did. I don't know. My memory. <laughs> Let's say no. you did. What yeah. the hell? <laughs> but it's just that my 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 memory of what I did and didn't do that time is very cloudy. Cloudy. Yeah. yeah. It's mixed up as it as it is in all kind of traumas and confrontations and violence, things that happen and didn't happen alternate in and my your head. Dreams about what happened. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, real memories and false memories. Uh, you know, they sort of conflate. We we rely on your journal. Yeah to uh, in these podcasts as close to factual as we can get yes although much of my journal is hearsay from you <laughs> and yeah, from and others right so yeah, who so, knows yeah most of what happened isn't is not there you know yeah. many of the dramatic or traumatic kind of things that i experienced yes and mm. i didn't write all the time either because a lot of times the action was non-stop on the hill right yeah and the real dramatic and traumatic ones a lot of them i didn't even tell you about yeah right yeah. uh for instance many times i i put on the ghost shirt and um dance at Tartuga Park before going up to the hill. You know, they were in essence kind of war dances for me, you know, because there was a constant war going on in my mind. You know, I'm using the word war a little loosely here. I, I've never been in actual combat when I was in the Army or anywhere else, but although as a teenager I was in a lot of fights, as an adult it, it there weren't very many. No, you, you were no. in a psychological and physical war in the sense that it was very scary and you were scared to death. Yeah, but now, yeah, the on the hill now, physical violence was a constant threat. Yes. And almost daily occurrence. And, you know, I grew up in the streets of Lockport, which is not, and I was on the street, I was a street person there, but it's not much different than the people growing up in these bad neighborhoods. In, um, no, it is much different. Yeah. You said it's not much different. No, it's, it's much, much di different. No, I didn't say, oh, yeah, it's much different. I just it's wanted not to clarify what you meant. Yeah. yeah. I was a novice in this environment. Yeah. Uh, but I was always pretending to be something more. But I also did begin to change. The ghost shirt and the ritual that I did at Tortuga Park gave me the courage to be something more. And I sort of became... The crazy fuck white boy living in a teepee. Yeah. And it was uh, a kind of pretend crazy until it... Until it became real crazy. Yeah. So before there was an art project on the fake camcorder boxes, I was at war with those who were sitting outside the hill, out in the open, making them right in front of the teepee. And I'd walk out of the teepee and say to them, go in somebody's hut. You can't do this out here. And they'd say back to me, who says? And I'd say, me. Sometimes I'd do the, the squirrel, you know. <laughs> and with big squirrel, I'd walk back into the teepee. And so 
variations of this scene happened all the time. I know. So they probably thought I was crazy, and they half-assed listened to me. And S- Spencer and Panama supposedly didn't want him out there either. So then somewhere in this war with the box people, right, yeah. there was a, a peace treaty or something, and the boxes now became part of our art. Our right? project, yes. For instance, we put them in a prominent gallery, uh, downtown alternative gallery at the time, Exit Art, that had a store that they called the apartment store. And uh, we also exhibited them at Brecht Forum, which oh was really God. funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Marxist Brecht Forum. Um, and they put one in their lobby uh, on a pedestal as, as an art object. Yeah, but I think it was only up there for a day or two. And then somebody, some Marxist <laughs> or socialist <laughs> attending the various lectures there stole, stole it. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they stole something valuable, right? A camcorder, not a piece of art, which has no value, right? Stupid Marxists. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we we always imagining them opening the box, right. right? And finding a copy of Prisoner of Love in it versus a camcorder. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they had their bookmark, but no, they did not write us to say they were not happy with their theft. (laughs) Anyway, so life went on on the hill, right? It just went on in all its absurd, heartwarming, frightening, sign-filled way. It just went on. Yeah, signs. Yeah, everywhere signs. Uh, Significant metaphysical markers, right? Yes, yes. I mean... Tortuga Pond had frozen over while we were gone. Uh, the city, had, as they periodically did, had cut off the electric. Yeah. You know, so the air pump and heater that I had installed inside the pond were turned off, and it froze over. But lo and behold, <laughs> in March, Tortuga stuck his head up out of the ice, right? He had hibernated uh, for the winter and was alive. He survived. Yeah. It seemed like a, a miracle, a, a miracle that everyone took to took as a metaphor Everyone. for their own lives. And, you know, they were lifted up by it. Mr. Lee and I talked about it for weeks. <laughs> I mean, talked about it the way we talked about, talked to each other, which was some Spanish on my part. Yeah. And, uh, but mostly just broad gestures, celebrating and, you know, like miming the incredible life and times of Tortuga, Tortuga del Sol. Tortuga de Luna. Right, right. Yeah. But everybody was just elated, elated, because they all took it as this, we're going to survive, we're going to survive yeah. sign, right? And uh, Tortuga actually went back into hibernation, but came out later. As I said, Tortuga has a good ending. Uh, thank you. Uh, so more from the heartwarming department before we get to some of the other departments, right? And there's so many examples of those. Collectively, it's what allowed us to continue living on the hill. You know, the old family um, that we had, a lot of them had died or moved on, but then there were all of the remnants there, of the original people, amongst whom hope sprang eternal. And this... Tortuga thing was a classic example, right? But for instance, brother Billy of the four Jersey brothers, the James gang, he stopped by. They let him out of jail on the condition that he would go into a drug program. He did, but then he quit because he said they made him sit there like an eight-year-old with with knees together and hands on his knees. Um, But then he he claimed that if he got a job, uh, he wouldn't have to go back to jail. 
don't know, right? So anyway, that's what he planned on doing. He wanted to stay clean because he was so crazy about his kids, right? High hopes, high hopes. Then same with uh, Sue and Woodsman Tony. They went into detox together. Uh, the ACT UP needle exchange people would come up to the hill every Saturday, and they allowed people to uh, trade in three needles for one clean one and bleach and cotton, right? So anyway, Sue and Tony told them they wanted to enter a program. And the, the guy there says, is today too soon? And Sue was elated. No, yeah, let's, uh, that's great. That's great. Let's go. Um, so, you know, we gave them our phone number and they left some stuff with us for safekeeping, belongings. Well, that didn't work out. A uh, bunch of bureaucratic hurdles. And the next day, they were so determined, they actually went to the hospital. And at the hospital, they were giving yet more reasons why they needed to go back out on the street. So they came back to the hill. But oh, the high hopes, right? The high hopes that everybody had that you wanted to support. Right. Yeah. And the dance with the city and the electric, it just continued, right? Every time the city tore out the electric, there were fires on the hill yeah. from heating the barrels, right, that they brought into the huts. And this time, to restore the electric, me and uh, Sammy and Ivan, we went down to the pole again. And what we did was we cemented the line underground under in the crack of the sidewalk so you couldn't see it. Right. And uh, John got it all on film. I mean, I, I wanted to restore it. For me, we weren't having electric yet in the teepee. We'll talk about that. Yeah. yeah but yeah. Uh, I wanted Tortuga to have an aerated, aerated Aerate, pond. Yeah, pond. Right, So exactly. the water keep moving. Yeah, right? yeah, because now that it's freshly <laughs> still so, alive, right? So hopes again. Hopes, I mean? hopes, 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 right. right. So, um, and Spencer and Robin, uh, drug dealers, right, they uh, continued to pledge their support. And they did support it by getting everybody to cooperate. Producers, financing the talent, I guess you could say, right? Wow. <laughs> well, just about everyone on the Hill worked for them already anyway, right? right? So every time somebody swept the yard or built a new hut or took out some garbage, they got paid by Spencer. Of course, we knew this was dirty money, right? Drug money. But going around them would have been impossible anyway. Yeah. So in, in making a film, we, we began to realize that the most prominent or significant theme or symbolic element should be fire. Yeah. And that's what we should edit everything around. Uh, nomads, homes next to fire, Prometheus stealing fire. This was all part of the... Uh, play we did. Right, it was an element Molten in the play. gold. Right, right. And so, uh, you know, of course we never realized how prescient this observation was about what would happen in real life. Yeah. I mean, foreshadowing the, the death of Mr. Lee. Right, I okay. Mean. So before that, more from the heartwarming department. Oh. <laughs> Weeks later, uh, I watched Red and Ivan work together on the fuse box because there were some wiring problems. And it was like the most important thing, as though they didn't have any other problems, right? Most important thing in the world to them. What I wrote in the journal will further explain our prisoner of love mindset. I said, I know I keep saying this, but I have such affection for these people and I can't quite put my finger on why. They just keep admirably plugging along, plugging along like, like everybody else, except the deck is completely stacked against them. 
But the struggle is so basic that all the layers of pretense, all the neuroses, all the attempts at mindfuck and control over others just fall away. Like Zen, the focus falls on doing one thing at a time, here and now. And since there is, in most of these people's cases, I'm saying this now, there is no big picture. They were all dying of AIDS, right? It's possible to live side by side without judgment, with humility, with tolerance. And it's not pity I feel, except maybe pity for the quiet desperation of humanity in general. On the contrary, I laugh so hard and so often at the comedy of the situations on the hill. For example, right? One evening the cops came around because someone, a robber, ran through the hill trying to escape the cops. So now they noticed that everybody had electric again, right? <laughs> they started searching the huts, starting with Tony's. And when Ivan realized that, that they were around, he quickly turned off the breaker just before they almost found a gun under his bed. At that point... <laughs> The whole unaware hill came out of their huts yelling, hey, yo, what's up? Hey, Ivan, what's with the electric? Right. <laughs> it was like a combination, like beggar's opera and comedy of errors up there most of the time. Right. It was hilarious, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> after that, the city ripped out the electric again. Right. And, um, but they had to use a special electric electricity detector it looked like you know because like yeah, you guys had buried the lines right. unlike the rest of the united states <laughs> right so they were they were going along the sidewalk with this detector it looked like you know one of those metal detectors or something they were going and of course they found it right yeah. and they took it out and then right after that that's when spencer bought a generator and he was selective on who he hooked up to the generator yeah, and like you know like forcing sammy <laughs> To, I don't know if he had to pay or do something, <laughs> yeah. but Sammy, who used to lord over the electricity, Electric, right? Yeah. And right after the generator started cooking, right, uh, a cop came up, and he came up to me, and he said, uh, you got a receipt for that generator? I said, uh, why? Has there one been stolen or something? <laughs> and I said, yeah, I got it, but... You're not going to get it. No, right. Um, so... <laughs> Anyway, it's a free he, country, right? <laughs> Meanwhile, we had made the teepee very comfortable. We put in a fold-out couch, and we had a television inside. Oh, I mean, I, looking back now, we yes. we kind of shake our heads because electric and a teepee, yeah. a television in a teepee. teepee. Yeah, uh, we were lost. Yeah, we, <laughs> but we weren't. We weren't spending most nights there. I mean, we were at, at the point, apartment, yeah. right? And the hill was now strictly an art project, the backdrop of another planned theater piece mm -hmm. uh, and the set of a planned film, right? Which brings us to the absurd department. Red was still around, but he had fallen while <laughs> climbing up to steal the surveillance cameras from the ATM vestibules, which was his MO these days. And he broke both his arm and his leg. So he was wheelchair bound and uh, he, actually he was hobbling around until we remembered we had a wheelchair still from our production of uh, Fassbinder's Trash to City and Death, which we talked about in episode four. Um, but now Ivan, who was his roommate, he was pushing him around everywhere to take <laughs> care of his business. It was pretty funny, you know. And okay, Dip 
was locked into his hut by Panama. Locked in. He was supposed to sell drugs from a little window, and he could only get out if Shaft, which was one of Panama's men, let him out. Yeah, very crazy and dangerous place to allow yourself to be put in with all the fires that were going on, right? right. And now Ivan was selling out of Coco's hut while she was in the hospital. Uh, Red, in fact, was telling me that he was doing, at that point, both methadone and dope, which is why Ivan fervently hoped that the hill would finally come down. It was the motivation he needed to get clean, right? Right. But instead... Right. He stole... He took off with... uh, It was said $1,400. Yeah. So now Spencer had his hut because Ivan was gone. The Thoreau hut, which we kept telling Spencer, no, you can't have the Thoreau hut. Well, I don't know how we were telling him that, but I mean, now he was essentially a co-producer of the film with us. And in a way, we were co-producing The Hill at this point and everything that was going on. At one point, we even gathered in John's apartment and we were looking at the film footage. Yes. And Spencer was particularly interested in the footage I shot with the uh, Super 8 out of a peephole inside the teepee where I was catching one of the cops being paid off by Tony Tony Panama. Panama. And uh, so when we were looking at the footage, he saw it and it wasn't quite enough to to show it. And so he was was mad about that. But then another kind of absurdity, I guess. Now, this is just five months after we got back, right? Yeah. He invited us to his house where Robin was having a baby shower. Yeah, she was seven months pregnant, meanwhile. Yeah, and it was in East New York, uh, mm-hmm. one of the most dangerous neighbors, neighborhoods in New York City at that time. Yeah. And, we, and we went, and we were in the car, and we stopped and asked somebody for directions. And, and they told us, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> no, right. <laughs> you know, they kept telling us, get out of this neighborhood, whitey, essentially. Yeah, yeah. and we were also the only white people at the, at the shower. But, yeah. I mean, we were made comfortable and everything, like we belonged. And uh, from the hill, Shaft was there, mm-hmm. but not Tony Panama, which was conspicuous. Mm-hmm. But maybe not. I mean, there's distinctions between Shaft, who seemed to be a general, and Tony Panama, who there seemed to ranks, be a, a lieutenant. Well, anyway, I talked to Shaft there for a while uh, about his pneumonia and Coco's. Both had tumors. Uh, Coco's was close to the heart. Both almost died, he said. And then little demon livewire Kia and Vaughn were there with, you know, a fake camcorder fame. And um, meanwhile, I had drawn Spencer and Robin onto mailbags, which they really, really wanted and pressed me on. This was so important to them. So I gave it to them, and uh, they, at this point, shower had gave me a, a wool and silk scarf as a thank you and anyway we danced all night and we had a lot of fun beyond absurd which brings us to the frightening category all the violence all around us that kept escalating yeah there was a jewelry store on canal street that was robbed and the owner shot the the perp um, three times dead, dead. right and the people on the hill said that it was one of the people who hung out up on the hill. And there were so many unknown, scary, dangerous-looking people that were hanging out now. And all of them were would-be perps, it looked yes, like. Yes, and people were getting held up at gunpoint. You know, we had told one story in a previous episode where Coco was 
but there were more incidents of that. And and Juan, poor Juan, kept getting beaten up. I guess you know he was a man child and an, an easy target for people's rage. And one, one time he had to get his upper jaw wired after a fight broke out, and somebody uh, hit him in the face with a chair. And then Bobby who we haven't talked about that much, uh, but he he's, was up there now. and um, uh, We'll he, talk about him. Yeah, we'll talk yeah, about Bobby. Go uh, ahead. But he hit Juan in his wired jaw, so now Juan needed another operation. and uh, But in the middle of all that, Juan managed to give me another belly laugh. He made a big handmade sign on cardboard that he hung out over the wall facing Canal Street, and it said, Please send help. <laughs> <laughs> but still, the, the scariest part was the cops, I think. They came around regularly now, yeah. and they were all on the take. It seemed like all of them, not all of them, but majority of them were on the take. Besides shooting through the peephole that time of that transaction, right, I also bought a micro recorder. And I that was, fit into a cigarette pack. Right. I, I was in hopes of catching them and talking belligerently or... Doing, saying something corrupt, which they were always saying. Always. I mean, once I wasn't close enough to record, but one time I heard a cop say to one of the women that were hanging there, so I hear you, you like to suck black dick, or do you like it in the ass? You know, New that's York's what, finest, right? Well, yeah, so whose side are you on? You know, the cops or the drug lord? Well, neither. Both. <laughs> An extremely stupid situation. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, uh, one day, a cop came up and uh, beat the shit out of Tony Panama, but in was about to, I mean, you know, but in the last second, uh, he saw uh, two women photographers. They were, they, they hung out a lot, and we let them, and we let them take photographs because they weren't hit-and-run photographers. While we were gone, they also kept an eye on the teepee. They were one of the people who occasionally left messages, you know. But so the cops at the last second saw that those two women were up there and, and didn't um, and asked them, uh, well, what are you doing up here? And they said, oh, we're just students. So the cops turned to Tony and said, you're lucky today. And then another time, they smashed Tony Panama's hut up with sled, or sledgehammer, stereo and all, and then told him, told uh, another minor player up there whose name was also Tony, uh, that that Tony was snitching on Panama, the cops told him. So the two Tonys got into a fight, and both of them threatened that this isn't over, right? Yeah, that other Tony, this is supposed snitch, was a scary guy. He was about six feet tall. And oh, he was super scary. He was he was a psychopath, man. Yeah, and he had a, a jailhouse build, you know, bulging muscles. He was constantly threatening me, but I had developed another kind of crazy fuck pose that threw him off. Something besides the squirrel chuckle, which he would have, I don't know Dismissed. what he right. <laughs> beat you up for <laughs> yeah but anyway every morning uh the chinese communities gathered in the uh, park across the street from the hill and they would do uh tai chi exercise in the morning it would happen every morning around eight o'clock mm -hmm. i learned later that it wasn't tai chi it was probably qigong or qi qigong qigong yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah and it always ended with the posture of hugging the tree where you just stand and hug the tree and breathe when you're in a, a threatening situation, your body does something automatically, instinctually, and it's called the fight or flight syndrome. Or freeze. Freeze, right. Fight, flight, or freeze. Right. And freeze is when you don't know which one you're going to do. 
So I guess naturally my body would freeze when Tony confronted me, but somewhat controlledly, I would go from the freeze into hugging the tree and start breathing. And he said to me, what are you? Are you some kind of Kung Fu or something like that? <laughs> so he was thinking all the time that, you know, he could fight enclosed little tiny cell with his bulk, but he was probably afraid because Tony Panama kicked his ass one time. But what he didn't know was that if he attacked me, all I had was a squirrel chuckle and some unpracticed Tai Chi or... <laughs> And I, I'd be totally defenseless, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. Uh, so one Saturday, another thing that happened is five or six off-duty cops came up to the hill with brand new NYPD issue sledgehammers. This was later written about in an article. And they destroyed one of the huts. Supposedly, one of the cops, Nunez was his name, had his tires slashed. And he said they'd keep taking huts down every time something happened. After that, the precinct commander in a suit and tie came up to say, we have to work together, quote unquote, on this problem. And he got off, caught off guard when he was pressed. And then he said, oh, oh, those five or six guys with the NYPD issue sledgehammers, oh, those were firemen not police, which is really funny stuff if you think about it, right? That's, that's the best he could come up with. Yeah, so we started making phone calls, a yes, lot of them, which right? which part of this came out of, too. So, right. Because we were saying, we can't keep doing this shit. And we were trying to tell everyone we called uh, what was going on without making us a potential target, yeah. right? We told them that they can and should make arrests. That every idiot knows who's selling, who's supplying, who's buying, who's using. That they'd be doing everyone a big favor if they just cleaned house. But what they shouldn't keep doing is harassing and terrorizing people at random. Right. So weeks of nearly daily calls by us, of passing the buck by them. Oh, let me check into it further. Continued until one day a big meeting took place on the hill that involved all of these people, right? Everybody stood in a big circle in front of the geomancer's hut, right? The guy who built his hut into the hill, a woman named Deborah Chang. She was the community relations specialist for the mayor's office on homelessness, um, a police sergeant from the 5th Precinct, representatives from HRA, Human Resources Administration, and yes, Shaft, so a representative from Panama. And Nick was there, and he recorded it all with his little micro recorder uh, in your cigarette pack, right? Right. And when it was my turn to speak, I got everything out of my system, yeah. right, in front of everybody. Uh, the cops' aggressiveness, the cleanup effort and needing more dumpsters, dumpsters the promise our promise to build prettier huts <laughs> <laughs> and the tours of church groups every Friday evening, the regular tours of high school kids and grade school kids even, right? Yes, yes, they were regulars now. Yeah, and then, of course, the fires that occur when the electric is turned off and the cops coming in and taking whatever they want for themselves yeah. and then the drug dealers and the dilemma on what to do when they are honorable and treat you with respect, unlike the cops. And remember, when I said that uh, Schaff was standing Schaff there, was there. 
and uh, listening to everything we said, right? Right. And right on cue, when you said the cops come and just take whatever they want, when they want it, for themselves, this cop named Ward came riding up on his stupid scooter, idiot Ward, and said in front of everybody, hey, what are you doing with my wheelbarrow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we just looked at everybody in that circle, and they just looked down, uncomfortable, yeah. eyes averted. Right. You can't script this better. The thing is, everyone knew what was going on. Yes. The cops even mentioned Spencer by name. Yes. Why didn't they do anything? They just couldn't, I guess. Or Well, we know why, right? Why? Because... The police corruption scandal was going to be blown wide open. Well, yeah, but I mean, what does... In a couple uh, We don't know what's going to... Uh, we never knew, and no. we still don't know what was going on. Look, cops, you, they were beating up Panama. They knew who was doing it. Why couldn't they arrest them? There must be a reason why they can't because arrest Because it them. was their supply, their source of then money. Then why are they beating him up? Some of the cops are beating him up and tearing down his hut. To let them know who was boss. I guess. I don't right? know. I think there was good and bad cops. And, you know, the good cops, their hands were tied for whatever reason. I, I really don't know. But we ended that meeting feeling very confused, suspicious. All right. So a week later, um, <laughs> a week later, Spencer did a Memorial Day barbecue. I spent a lot of the time with the various kids that were there. Um, Nick made them a basketball hoop and entertained them inside the teepee. Uh, we harvested a couple of the radishes that were not by this point coming out of the garden that we had planted. Um, in the course of the day, Tony's Sue uh, played basketball for what seemed like hours. I don't know where she got this energy, but in between, she was going in to shoot up, right, um, periodically. Uh, the women meaning Robin and her sister-in-law and her friends, fixed the food. And the boys took care of the generator when there was a pro- at one point a problem with it and it turned off, right? And, and once again, uh, a good old-fashioned cookout was held by all. Uh, the two lady photographers came. Andreas, our friend, our photographer friend whose pictures are, you know, in the cover of my book and this podcast. Um, Our friend Kara came. Uh, Nothing monumental or eventful happened except a barbecue in a shantytown with huts and a Lakota teepee hosted by a drug dealer with drug addicts and kids present. I mean, we're still in the absurd category now, right? At this point, I wrote in my journal, I've come to the conclusion that the hill will be there forever. All those rumors over the months and over the years of it being torn down, yeah, sure. I long for a great act, all caps, an inspired act, a crescendo followed by a resolution that will leave things palpably altered. Yeah, right. For the better. In other words, I don't want to die, I wrote. Am I asking too much? Ha, end quote. Right. Yeah, careful what you ask for, right? <laughs> yeah. A few days later on May 29th, uh, 1992, while we were sleeping comfortably in our Brooklyn apartment, the event that prompted us to bury the story in our basement for 30 years, the event we still dread talking about, the event that we want to attempt to reconcile and finally face head on, 
happened. A rival drug dealer set a fire on the hill and killed the most innocent one of us all. Mr. Lee burned to death in his hut. So two weeks later after that, uh, the police corruption scandal starring Michael Down that we had talked about in an earlier episode broke news, big Newsday headline, feds zero in on cops, right? Um, this was years in the making. So this all coincided and all hell broke loose. And in the next episode, we're going to dive into the fallout of all of this, okay? Again, feel free to write awesomeness or any topic, write podcast at thiefstheater.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thank you for listening to The Hill by Thieves Theater. It feels funny giving all this after talking. Uh, Yeah, like, subscribe, all of that. All right, thanks for listening, guys. See you next episode.